If you would, please turn with me in your copy of the Word of God to 2 Kings chapter 2, and our final sermon in the life of Elijah. Let's come together and we'll ask God's blessing. Father in heaven, we come into your presence tonight and ask you to speak. Will your servants come and go in this world, O God? You remain the same yesterday, today, and forever, from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. As we pray, Father, that you will speak comfort and calm the anxious hearts of your people in this place, O God, and assure them that as you were with us together while I was here ministering, O Lord, you will be with them and continue to be with them as you call me on. And the God who brought me here will be sure to supply all of their needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus long after you've called me from here. We offer these prayers tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. This is one of those accidental providences when I planned the, the, to preach through the life of Elijah at the beginning of the summer. I never expected to be called away from here to First Press Columbia, and I never expected this to be my last evening message, and yet here we are. And of course, I don't mean in any stretch of the imagination to draw any connection between Elijah's departure from Israel and my departure from here. It certainly should be less dramatic, I trust. Please listen carefully. This is the Word of God. Now, when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elisha said to Elisha, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he answered, Yes, I knew it. Keep quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them, as they were both standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water. And the water was parted to the one side and to the other, till the two of them could go over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please, let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. 
And he said, You've asked a hard thing. Yet if you see me as I have been taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. As they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw no more. He saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood in the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other, and Elisha went over. Now when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them, they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. And they said to him, Behold, now there are with your servants fifty strong men. Please let them go and seek your master. It may be that the Spirit of the Lord has caught him up and cast him upon some mountain or some valley. And he said, You shall not send. But when they urged him, still he was ashamed. He said, Send. They sent therefore fifty men, and for three days they sought, but did not find him. And they came back to him while he was staying at Jericho, and he said to them, Did I not say to you, Do not go? And the men of the city said to Elisha, Behold, the situation of this city is pleasant as my Lord sees, but the water is bad and the land is unfruitful. He said, Bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day, according to the word that Elisha spoke. He went up from there to Bethel, and while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. And he turned round, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore forty-two of the boys. From there, he went on to Mount Carmel, and from there, he returned to Samaria. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the Word of God endures forever. Well, in the history of God's people in both the Old Testament and the New Testament and afterwards in history of the Christian church, it seems that, that, that certain leaders are so, well, irreplaceable that we can't imagine the world without them. I can think about my own life, uh, the, the news that Ted Donnelly, one of my great mentors in Northern Ireland, who was perhaps the greatest preacher of our generation, um, had passed. Uh, it, it is hard for me to imagine never hearing him preach again. And then, of course, R.C. Sproul, when he passed, and Ligonier and that whole ministry was left bereft without him. It, it's hard to, he was so closely 
attached to that uh, ministry. It's hard to imagine Ligonier without him. And of course, we could think of Harry Reader at Briarwood and his sudden passing earlier this year. And throughout history, the church has faced these moments when God has taken his key servants, Martin Lloyd-Jones from Westminster Chapel, where they were having a recent Ligonier conference this weekend, actually, Charles Haddon Spurgeon from uh, Metropolitan Tabernacle. And when these leaders are taken, when they pass, it seems, well, it seems like the world changes color, doesn't it? It, it, it seems as if how will we cope without them is kind of the rallying cry in the, in the church. The space they used to occupy, their, their pulpits, their ministry, feel a little bit like a fireplace on a cold night without a blazing conflagration in the middle of it to warm the room. It seems cold and dark and lifeless and empty. And you'll often hear people say things like, well, it's the end of an era. Well, certainly it was that way with Elijah. He, he is one of the great Old Testament figures. When the Jews thought of the law and the prophets, the two great divisions in the Old Testament Scriptures, they thought of the law, and they thought of Moses, and they thought of the prophets, and they thought of Elijah. And these were the two figures, of course, that God Himself selected to be with Jesus on the night of His transfiguration, to witness His glory, and to encourage Him about His exodus. So it's hard to quantify the loss of such a figure, and that seems to be the thrust of this chapter. How will Israel cope without Elijah? And the great lesson of the chapter, of course, is that when God takes one servant away, He tends always to have another servant in the wings waiting to bring him forth and to teach God's people that while servants come and go, the God of those servants remains, and God's people are none the poorer for their brief earthly loss. As we enter the chapter, everybody seems to be knowing that Elijah is about to be taken. Uh, it's been revealed somehow that the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, right? And as Elijah makes this kind of last farewell trip through some of the great geographical centers of Old Testament religion, as he, as he goes to meet some of the the, the prophets, the young prophets from the seminaries, you might say, as these men come out, they say um, to Elisha, God is about to take your master away from you. And they said again and again, and Elisha doesn't want to talk about it. He says, yeah, I know that's about to happen. Just be quiet. Enough already. And there's this strange motif where Elijah says to Elisha, you stay here, I'm going to go on alone. And it's hard to know exactly what the significance of that is. Some commentators are wondering, is Elijah testing Elijah's commitment to him and his resilience? That could be a little bit of a stretch, although there does seem to be a connection between Elisha holding on to the end and witnessing Elijah's translation to heaven and receiving the double portion of the Spirit. What is clear, though, as you look at the passage, there's a geographical kind of mirror image. The prophets start in Gilgal, and they go from there to Bethel, to Jericho, and then to the Jordan. And Elisha retraces the steps. He comes from Jordan 
to Jericho, and then to Bethel. That's significant. It's like a mirror image. Elijah goes one way, and Elisha returns the same way. The only thing different is the man, but everything else right down to the clothing is just the same, which is perhaps the lesson of the passage. And Elijah requests, Elisha requests a double portion. Pink thinks he's asking to be doubly effective as Elijah, and there's some merit to that in that um, Elisha does double the miracles recorded in in the Old Testament, and also his ministers for double the length of time that his mentor ministered. But I think that the better understanding of the text is that Elisha is asking to be the spiritual firstborn of Elijah. Remember in Deuteronomy 21, 17, the, the father would divide up the inheritance among the male heirs, and if he had six male heirs, he had six um, portions. But the firstborn got a double portion, so within seven portions. So the firstborn got a double portion, and everybody else got a single portion. And it, it, it's more that kind of a language here that Elisha is asking to be treated as the firstborn heir of Elijah's prophetic ministry. And as he retraces Elijah's steps in every geographical touch point that Elijah has just come to and left, Elisha leaves a sign behind, the significance of which is not hard to um, discern. He comes back the way Elijah went. He wears the, the cloak Elijah wore, and he comes back doing signs that display the power of God, the wisdom of God, the grace of God, and the judgment of God, all connected to the bearer of the Word of God. In one sense, everything is changing. Elijah is gone. But in another sense, nothing is changing. God is here, and with Him, His Word, and through His Word, His power, His wisdom, His grace, and His judgment. That's the lesson of this passage. So, the first thing I want you to see this evening is that while Elijah has gone, the power of God remains. And you see that there as Elijah's taken. As Elijah's taken, Elisha says, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and the horsemen. That's repeated whenever Elisha dies later in 2 Kings. And it's not so much that he's not describing the horsemen that took Elijah, Elijah to heaven. We're not told that specifically. The horses and the chariots divided Elisha from Elijah, and Elijah goes up in the whirlwind. But it's, it's, it's better to see this as Elijah himself represents the chariots and the horses of, of Israel, that it's the prophetic word that is the military power behind Israel's might. As Rick said so well this morning in the, in the Bible reading, that while Gideon's throng might have had um, swords in their belt that were carrying trumpets in one hand and a, and a, and a, a, a torch in the other hand, and it was the swords of the Midianites that killed one another. And likewise, uh, the secret of Israel's military power is the prophetic Word of God behind the scenes. And it is Elijah who is the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And as Elijah is taken, his cloak, his pulpit gown, if you like, falls to the ground. And Elisha goes back and picks it up 
puts it on. And he takes the cloak down to the water. And it's interesting, that miracle done by Elijah, Elijah didn't touch the water with his hand. That would connect the miracle too much to Elijah. He takes off his, his, his prophetic garb, rolls it up, and touches the water with the garb, almost like a sign that it's, it's not the man, it's the office that does the power. Elijah's going, but the cloak remains. And Elisha, clothed in that same cloak, goes down to the water, takes the cloak off, touches the water. And what he says next is amazing. He doesn't say, where is the spirit of Elijah? He says, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? That's the great thing. Elijah's gone. The great question that Israel needs to hear is that God is still here. His servant is gone, but God has not removed himself. His presence is still here. His word is still here. And with his word, also his power. And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other, and Elisha went over. And even that miracle, it's kind of like it goes back in history beyond just Elijah's unusual mode of crossing the Jordan, but it goes back to the very beginning of Israel's entry into the Promised Land and Joshua leading the people across the Jordan River, or better, the ark leading the, um, the people across the river and the waters parting, you remember, when they were in flood. And it's connecting the power of God and back over 500 years. It hasn't changed. And God doesn't, you know, when most people crossed the river in those days, even, at, even in Joshua's day, and certainly in Elijah's day, and every day in between, you used a river or you swam. You used a boat or you swam. You didn't go, open sesame, and the waters parted. But every so often, God will step in and show His power, and He does it here through Elijah and then Elisha to demonstrate the power of God coming through the bearers of the Word of God. And it's that very same thing um, in the New Testament, when Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. It's the Word of God that brings the power of God. Take the enemies of God and turn them into the children of God, and all for the glory of God. And I'm parting the waters in the pulpit. Now, when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them, they said, the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. And essentially, that's what Elisha asked for. But they're connecting the spirit too much to Elisha, I think. Elisha had it better. Where's the God of Elisha? It's one of the great dangers, I think, that perennially face the children of God is that they, they trust too much, lean too much, and look too much to the servants that God raises up to lead them. And if, not, if we're not very careful, it's very easy to idolize God's servants and to expect too much from them. And so when they die or when they leave, people can think, oh, all is lost. If we learn anything from the passage this evening, that's exactly what's not happening. 
Servants come and go, but the power of God and the Word of God remains, and the two go together. And so never ever think, I don't think you do, but never ever think that there's a connection between um, me and the power here. I'm just the conduit. I'm just a straw. You know, when you when you buy a uh, a Slurpee or a uh, smoothie and you suck up the straw, you don't think too much about the straw. You think about the the yummy frozen goodness you're sucking up into your mouth. Well, the gospel and the word of God preached from this pulpit. It's the real deal. I and any other man who fills this pulpit, we're just the straw. We're just the, the spout through which God dispenses the the manna of his word and the power of his gospel. So don't be frightened, my brothers and sisters, when I'm going in these weeks to come. God is still very much here. His word is still very much here. And the power of God and the gospel is still very much here. And I look forward to seeing what that power and what that gospel does in your midst in the days and weeks and months and years that lie ahead. Elijah is gone, but the power of God remains. Secondly, Elijah is gone, but the wisdom of God remains. When the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them, they said, the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed to the ground before him, And they said to him, Behold now, there are with your servants fifty strong men. Please let them go and seek your master. It may be that the Spirit of the Lord has caught him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley, and he said, You shall not send. When they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, Send. Then they sent before, therefore, fifty men, and for three days they sought him, but did not find him. And they came back to him while he was staying at Jericho. And he said to them, Did I not tell you, do not go? And it's, it's a small point here, isn't it? But Elisha is connected to the Word of God. He, he knows what's going on. He's able to interpret the signs of the times and, and what's happening. Elisha, Elijah hasn't just been caught up for a moment and deposited in some mountain somewhere. He's been taken away from good for good. And these prophets, even though these are the ones who came to, came to Elisha earlier in the chapter and said, you know, God's taking your servant away, when it happens, they can't really bring themselves to believe it. And Elisha initially forbids them to go and then eventually permits them to go just to get them off his back, I think. Uh, and they go away for three days and don't find Elijah. And, and they come back to Elisha and he's sitting there and says, it's not what I told you. And it's that quiet wisdom and confidence of a man who's learned to listen to the Word of God and to interpret the reality on the ground through the revelation of God's Word wisdom. It's not very flashy, but it's effective, and it will stop you making fun of yourself at times, as these young prophetlings discovered the wisdom of God 
is resting in Elisha because he's connected to the Word of God, and when God speaks, that settles it. And again, you know, it's the Word of God, Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, that makes us wise to salvation. And it's normal and natural for a congregation to be attached to the messenger, as it's normal and natural for the messenger to feel very attached to the congregation. And we love one another. But when the Lord takes his servants away through death or some other removal um, service, the wisdom of God still rests, and the way to be wise is to fear God and to listen to his word. And though Elijah's gone, the wisdom of God remains, because the word of God remains coming through the new servant God has raised up to stand in Elijah's shoes. Thirdly, and more obviously, Elijah has gone, but the grace of God remains. Verse 19, Then the men of the city said to Elisha, Behold, the situation of this city of Jericho is pleasant, as my Lord sees. But the water is bad, and the land is unfruitful. Now, the unfruitfulness here isn't so much speaking of a, a, of a, a blight on the harvest. It seems to be that there's a blight on the families in this city. Later on in verse 21, um, Elijah promises them, there'll neither be death nor miscarriage in this land anymore. It's that kind of unfruitfulness that I think is connected to Jericho. And it's important to realize that Jericho isn't just some random city, right? If you go back in, 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 in 1 Kings to the beginning of the Elisha Elijah narrative, sorry. Let me go back here a second. Um, you remember, whenever we first meet Elijah in 1 Kings 16, actually 1 Kings 17, but just before that in 1 Kings 16, we see one of the crowning features of Ahab's reign as he's turning away and worshiping Baal. At the very end of the chapter, in verse 34, we're told, In Ahab's days, Heel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Jericho was a cursed city. And once it was destroyed in the days of Jericho, it was, Joshua, it was under the ban. Only Rahab survived, and it was never to be built again. And God threatened, you remember, that if anyone ever built it again, there would be two monuments in the city, two graves, the grave of the firstborn, and which would be laid when the man laid the foundation and the gates of his lastborn when he set up its gates. And Heel of Bethel ignored that word, built the city, and experienced that judgment according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua. Another connection back to the Joshua narrative. And so Jericho is not just any city. It is, you might say, Kersberg, 
I think that was the title that Ralph Davis gave it. Um, it was Kirschberg. It was a place under the curse of God. And more than just these two lads who died, it seemed to be the curse of God was connected to this city. And the water in the city was bad under the curse of God. And women who were pregnant then often became, often had a miscarriage, and their children were stillborn or died before birth. And so Elijah again calls. Now, it's interesting to watch this. Now, remember, this is the new prophet. So when you look at the passage, there's the sign, just like the sacrament, there's the sign, but it's the word behind the sign that does the things. If you look in Second Kings, it's a very similar um, modus operandus. Verse 20, he said, bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, notice, thus says Yahweh. It's the word of pronouncement that has the power. Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So, after God spoke, the water has been healed to this day according to the word that Elisha spoke. The text explicitly connects the healing, the blessing, to the word, not the salt of the bull. That was just a sign. It's the word that brings the healing. And so this new prophet comes, he takes Curseville and turns it into Graceburg, or takes Curseburg, might be better, into Graceville as the word from Elisha brings grace and healing where before there was only the curse of God. And isn't that wonderful that the prophet is gone, Elijah's been taken, but the power of God to take away the curse has not gone, and the heart of God to bring a blessing has not gone. Even this city that was marked out as one of the most heinous places of Canaanite idolatry and ungodliness is touched by the word of this new prophet. And the word comes, and the word produces the healing. You see the same pattern in Christ's ministry. If you turn in John 4 a second. At the end of the passage of John 4. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. These are people who want to see signs and wonders, right? And the official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. Notice what it says next. The man believed the word. In, in the generation of people who only wanted to see signs and wonders, Christ gave a mere word to this man, and the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, yesterday, 
At the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Even in the earthly ministry of Christ, the focus falls upon… He is the living Word of God, and the focus falls here on the Word He said. That's where the power's at. And the same with Elijah. Elijah's gone, but the Word is still there. And with that Word, there comes healing and grace and, and mercy. And it's the same here as well. I am no Elijah, but as the Lord takes me away, and other preachers fill this pulpit, the face changes. But the Word's not changed, and the gospel's not changed, and the message is not changed, and the power of God to bring grace to your souls has not changed, and the heart of God that can look down upon a person who's done their dead-level best to bring the curse of God down upon them. And maybe it's, it's, it's felt as if the curse of God has been upon your life, and yet the blessing of God comes through the Word of God and the gospel of God to the glory of God because it's the Word the men speak, and not the men who speak it, that have the power. To God be the glory. So Elijah comes, and the power of God remains. Elijah goes, and the wisdom of God remains. Elijah has gone, but the grace of God remains. And lastly, Elijah has gone, but the judgment of God remains. You see that here in this final section as Elisha continues to retrace the steps of the old prophet. He went up from there to Bethel. Bethel, the great place, you remember, um, in Israel, you remember when Jeroboam I became king, and he was, his first great act of unbelief, frightened that the, the northern tribes would go back to Jerusalem in the south and worship, and they would relearn Yahweh's ways and reconnect with their old brothers. And so to protect them from that, he made two um, idolatrous shrines, one in Dan at the very north and one in Bethel at the very south. And in those shrines, he made a new priesthood and he made new gods, the golden calf, right? And so Bethel is a city that is, it is linked, in this time at least anyway, to the idolatrous worship that Jeroboam built and the Baalism that Ahab propagated. And as Elisha walks past the city, or perhaps through the city, as he was going on the way, kind of out of town, some small boys came out of the city. Now, the, the age group here is probably 10 to 12 years of age. When it says some, this isn't just like, you know, a few. We're told that 42 of them were killed, i.e. not all of them were killed. So this is a crowd of perhaps 50 to 100 boys. And they're boys on a mission. They know who Elisha is. He's covered in the cloak. His head is covered. But they've seen this man before, and his, he's follicularly challenged, as they say. He's bald. And they come out of the city, and they jeer at him. Go on up, you bald head. Go on up, you bald head. What they're saying is, go away. It's the same verb used of Elisha, Elijah going up to heaven, maybe saying, you do take your vanishing trick and go to heaven. More likely, keep on going up the road and don't stop here. We don't want your words in this city. This is organized, if you like, adult-level rebellion. 
against God and His Word, a refusal to hear the prophetic word of Elisha, which is the prophetic word of God. And Elisha turned. When he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys. From there he went on to Mount Carmel, another place linked to Elijah. And from there he returned to Samaria. Now again, some of the liberal commentators are a bit put out by this. This is really mean-spirited. You know, Elisha's a bad-tempered, crotchety old guy. He doesn't know how to laugh at his bald head. He's not upset about his bald head. They're mocking his office. They're rejecting his God's Word. And he curses them not in his own name. He curses them in the name of his God. And the two she-bears come out, which, of course, is a direct uh, fulfillment of the curses of the covenant at the end of Leviticus. If you were to turn back in Leviticus 26, 22, you would see God saying, threatening His people if they turn from Him and reject His word, I will let loose the wild beasts against you, which shall bereave you of your children and destroy your livestock and make you few in number, so that your words shall be deserted." And so, as Elisha brings this word to God's people, it's a cause for rejoicing, but also a cause for trembling, for the Word of God is living and active. It's sharp like a two-edged sword that cuts both ways. It cuts with blessing. It also cuts with cursing. It brings grace and mercy, but it brings judgment and death. And it searches us down to the core of our being, living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. It's the Word of God. Elijah's gone, but the judgment of God's Word remains. In a sense, that's the secret, isn't it, of the success of Elijah's ministry and the success of Elisha's ministry. The men were nothing, but the Word and the Spirit were everything. And it's the same with every successful servant of God. We come and go, but it's these spiritual forces that remain that really are the things that do the work. Like Moses and Moses, Luther in Wittenberg. If I just sat in the bar and drank beer with Amsdorf, but it was the Word that did the work. The Word and the Spirit. And that Word's a powerful thing, and it's a glorious thing. It brings God's power to save, and God's wisdom to direct, and God's grace to forgive and cleanse and decurse people and places. But it also brings God's judgment on those who reject it. And as God's servants come and go, this passage is, a, is, a, is a, a red flag, as it were, to the people of God, saying, Lord, you've taken your servant away, but don't take your word away. Don't take your spirit away. Don't take your presence away, because we need your power, and we need your wisdom, 
And we, O Lord, rejoice at your blessing and your grace, and we tremble at your judgment. And and, and we want a preacher, O God, who will come and bring the good news and the bad news, who will tell us of our sin and of our Savior, and who will preach the gospel to us, that through him and through his message and by your Spirit, you'll bind up the brokenhearted and heal all of our wounds. That's what you need, my brothers and sisters, and that's what you'll have. God may be taking me away, but he's not taking his word away. He's not taking his power away. He's not taking his wisdom away. He's not taking his grace away, and he's not taking his judgment away. And these things wrapped up in the word are all the things you need to live for him, to serve him, to worship him, to minister in his name, to witness for his glory. And in the end, when all said and done, to die the death of the righteous and rise up with Elijah into the heavens where we should be together forever in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, O God, for the times you make little of your servants. You take them away. You kill them. You remove them. You move them on to show where the secret of the power is and the wisdom and the grace and the judgment. We pray, O Lord God, as you move me on here, O God, we pray with confidence that the promises of God in Christ, which are yea and amen, will not be taken away. And the gospel and the word of God will continue to sound forth from this pulpit through Kyle and other preachers, O God, and the pastors and elders of this church, that the Word of God will spread rapidly and be glorified, and it will perform its work in the hearts of your people and will never return to you void. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.